how are the Stokeses? Good evening. What do you know? I came ready for the ball game. How about y'all? Hey, good to see you, sweetie. Don't you look nice? What's happening with you, darling? Don't you look good? Hey, I'm ready. Let me tell you. Gosh, I didn't think we'd have this many people. So, hello, ladies. Good to see you. Good to see you guys. Ouch. Hey. Uh, no. This is a prayer. Oh, Lord. Show your favor upon us today. That's. Yeah. 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 It would be a beautiful thing if they if they did win, but I I'm not counting on it. Let's be clear. So. Goodness. How about that? I'm telling you. We'll ask the Lord's kindness on them. <laughs> How are you, Gary?
All right. Hey, everyone. Good evening. <laughs> Let's sing together a song that we all know. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, God, my Father.
Thank you, Shumi. Thank you. What a blessing you are to us, my friend. We are grateful for you and your wonderful leadership this evening. Welcome tonight, my friends. It's a joy to have you. We are glad to be at 5 at 5 yet again. Let me just say for the record, go Cowboys. We are recording this, so hopefully we will uh, celebrate this when it plays on Wednesday. But irrespective of that, we trust the Lord and his goodness. So let us dive right into Revelation 20. We're going to ask some questions about this passage tonight, but more to the point, we're going to ask these questions that close out the section of who is Satan, what does the created order mean, how do we close that, the great white throne of judgment, the five at fives to follow, the ones that come after this, starting next week, they will deal with heaven. They will deal with the next chapters, the last two chapters. Someone asked me not long ago, are we going to continue five at five once Revelation is, is, is completed? Absolutely. We'll change what we're doing with it and sprinkle in some other things that we're working on, but we've got such a momentum going with this, I hate to stop it. So let us pray together and then we will proceed. You are a gracious blessing to us, Jesus. Thank you for loving us, for making us yours. Thank you for wanting us, for fashioning us with your hand and then choosing us to be yours. Tonight, Lord, we remember that. We thank you for it. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our minds and hearts and, yes, Lord, even our eyes to those around us in our mission field who desperately need the hope that we have found. I pray, Lord, that as we go about our business this week, that you would send us to them. Help us to find them, Lord, and once we find them, to share your hope with them. It's gracious that you love, Lord Jesus, so broadly. So let us see as you do. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our first question tonight really moves back uh, to verse 7. Let's read it, verse 7 once again. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. When we take up this question, why will God release Satan at the end of a thousand years? Let us say conclusively, we don't have an answer from the Word of God other than what I just read to you. He doesn't tell us this is the purpose behind it beyond what we have. Why did God choose this way? Why did God not arrange things differently? Or more to the point, more to my satisfaction. Let me just be honest enough to say that. This is not the way I would have done things. I would have thrown Satan into that lake of fire at the end of verse 6 not the end of verse 10. And yet, 
This, perhaps, his release is to prove once and for all that even after a thousand years of Christ's beautiful and glorious reign, that humanity's heart is still black as midnight, and only God's grace can save us. I, I worked at Sears, I've told you that many times now, back when I was in seminary, and one of the things that I learned conclusively is the depravity of humanity. Over and over and over again, I learned it. I was never more certain of that axiom than I was when I was working there. I knew I was broken, and I knew I'd seen others be broken, but I didn't see the scale of it until such a time as that. When we see it in real time, like we will here, then it's easy for us to go, okay, without God's grace, so go I. This, this moment, perhaps God is choosing to use it to emphasize that very thing. An evil army once more will rise to challenge God. Uh, Charles Swindoll made some remarks on this that I thought were worth sharing with you. He is a wonderfully gifted communicator, and he suggests several key things in one of the messages he did on Revelation about this army and how it is that they'll be gathered and where they'll come from and why they will be there. Let's take a look at some of them. They'll be geographically remote from the furthest places, from the furthest reaches of the kingdom. In other words, on the very fringes, that's why they are willing to partake in this, this upheaval, in this terrible moment, geographically remote. Now, some of these places that are geographically remote, they don't like for you to tell them they're geographically remote. I've had some people that have talked to me since we, we came to Midland that talk to me about living in Midland as if we are Siberia itself. Have you ever had encounters with people like that? And they will say things like, it must be awful to live out there. Well, no, actually, it's quite pleasant, most of the time anyway. Uh, certainly better than living in the Metroplex some days. And I, I, I realized one day that I'm no longer from the Metroplex when I got into a traffic jam for the fourth time in that day and just groaned. I realized my son is definitely not from the Metroplex because all he could say the whole day we spent in traffic, he said, another traffic jam? What is wrong with these people? <laughs> There's something to be said for geographically remote. However, perhaps Dr. Swindoll has a point. If you are remote, then the touch of the kingdom will not be something that it connects with you. They'll be generationally removed, far enough from their ancestors they've forgotten the pain of the beast's attack, the false prophet's accusations, the Antichrist and his awful moment. They will be finally spiritually distant. The outward expectations of worship and civic duty but inwardly harboring decades of resentment, cynicism, selfishness, and rebellion toward Christ and his kingdom. In other words, repeating the same mistakes that brought Satan's fall in the first place. As we mentioned this morning, these generations, there are not as many as you think in a thousand years, only 40. We sing a beautiful song on a regular basis, and I love it, 
Uh, it is a, a song that is the hymn of heaven, and it says literally a thousand generations. Well, quite frankly, all the way back to Jesus, we only have about, uh, about 85. And then if you go back, let's say the earth really is 6,000, we have about 250, 300. A thousand generations, we'll have to live another, you can do the math, stretch it out that much further. The Lord would have to delay his coming. Doesn't really matter, but the spiritually distant part does. There are people who live in the sound of the chapel bells over here and in the shadow of our building, but they are still spiritually distant. There are people who will watch our broadcast and maybe even come to our facility, but they are still spiritually distant. You don't have to be geographically remote for that to happen to you. You don't have to be generationally removed for that to be true. So what will God do with these? What, how, will they, how will they rise to the surface? Well, according to what we just read in verses 7 to 10, they will be gathered together in a great number, and they will come to surround the great city. Now, verse 9 is one of those that we can't quite say exactly what they mean. Uh, when it says they'll be surrounding the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Are those two locations? Are they one? It's not clear. But we can say this. Regardless of where they're from, regardless of where the army comes from, irrespective of Gog and Magog and their place in the conversation, let us say conclusively their defeat is still just as certain. This is a good word. Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, said this about this, this topic. I'll tell you why Satan is released at the end of the thousand years if you'll tell me why God let loose Satan in the first place. Let him loose, it should say, not let me. <laughs> Sorry, typo ran, run muck there. Um, so I, I want to I caution you. One of the dangers that I run into is taking an overly academic approach to Scripture, especially Revelation and apocalyptic writings like Daniel and Ezekiel. There are questions that just don't have answers, and they drive me crazy because I want answers to them. And so I'll continue to push, continue to study, continue to research, continue to, 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 to read about it and maybe even write. Sometimes that makes more sense to me when I begin to put my thoughts down. Instead, though, sometimes I have to come to the hard realization, God didn't tell me everything I want to know. And as a result, I get the chance to say, okay, God, you are in charge, I am not. I surrender this at your feet, and I respect that you, Lord Jesus, have taken this to your care. So why will God release Satan at the end of the thousand years? We don't know. But it seems that the mission is to gather this army one more time for a final assault. This second question we answered pretty strongly this morning, but it, I wanted us to talk about it tonight. I wanted us to talk about it again tonight because I want us to reflect on the reality that this brings for those who are apart from us, those who are in our community who are facing this second death. What is the second death? So Revelation 20, verse 6, Revelation 20, verses 14 to 15, speak of a second death for those outside of Christ. It, 
is a, a, a statement without parallel, really, other than John 3, a second birth. A second birth, we know that from the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. It's not possible to enter your mother's womb and be born again, so it's a spiritual birth, isn't it? Likewise, a second death is not a resurrection for the purpose of being dead again. It is rather a spiritual death. It is synonymous with the lake of fire reserved for Satan, the beast, the false prophet, and those who receive the mark on his forehead. It's also mentioned in verse 11 of uh, Revelation 2. The second death is reserved for those who have rejected Christ. There will be a great many of them. And you might say, why should I care? After all, that's not coming for me. One element of our calling as Christians is to care about people. Caring for people means caring about their eternal destiny, most of all. No doubt you've been told, like I have, that there are many things that I simply shouldn't speak into anymore, that I shouldn't try to foist or push my religion onto people who don't want to hear it. Indeed, there are times when that foisting, as it's called, is maybe inappropriate. However, caring about someone's salvation is never out of style. I want to encourage you today to join me in preparing well for the opportunity to share the gospel. The opportunity to weave the gospel into conversations and to proclaim it when the Lord opens that door. Now the first few times you do it, it's a little bit like when you were learning to ride your bicycle. Do you remember those days? How was it? Well, it was a little herky-jerky. It was a little whoppy-jawed and you didn't quite know where to find your balance and you had to have some help. Somebody had to come along beside you and help you with that. We're going to do that later this semester. We'll be talking about that in the coming days. But more than that, you got better as you continued to do it. You got experience and you grew and you understood how to maintain balance and where to find the center of gravity and to keep it over the center of the bike and how to navigate corners and how to stop effectively and not crash except in, in, in bad occasions. This is the essence of the gospel communication. Telling people about Jesus doesn't necessarily come naturally to any of us, but it is a necessary component. And here's why. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, the last verses that we tackled today, says that the second death results in a permanent, eternal separation from God for all those who have rejected Christ. We don't want that. Not for those we care about, not for those that are around us. It'd be a shame for someone to be this close to our church and miss out on heaven. May God grant us the mercy we need to help us as we help as many people as we can. There will be some who don't want our help. Yes, that's true. And this much I learned in uh, lifeguarding school. You cannot rescue someone who's still trying to rescue themselves. You must stay far enough away to where they're willing to admit that they can't save themselves. And when they do, then they're ready to be rescued. Translate that into spiritual matters. 
as long as someone is trying to save themselves through their good works and through their moral deeds and their own effort, they will never be able to truly, fully accept the gracious gift of salvation that Jesus provides. But that doesn't mean I should stand far away from them. It means I stand close, knowing that eventually they'll find the end of that. And when they do, that's when the Lord grants us the opportunity to reach out a hand, grab them, and pull them to safety. Now, some of them will still fight us off. We understand that. There was one man that I will never forget. We knocked on his door, and he told us in no uncertain terms that he wanted nothing to do with Jesus or the church. I've been disappointed by the church far too often, he said as he shut the door. Don't conflate the church and Jesus every time. Jesus is perfect. The church will make mistakes from time to time. Let us point people to Jesus. For if we do so, we know they shall not be disappointed. Let's move on to the great white throne judgment and the other judgments that we mentioned this morning. There are at least six of them in the Bible. Let's take a look at them. The judgment of church-age believers in heaven. Yeah, uh, we see that in 1 Corinthians 5.12. The judgment of the sheep and the goats. We see that in Matthew 25. The parable that Jesus tells there of the sheep and the goats wherein Jesus gathers sheep on his right and the goats on his left and proclaims a word of encouragement to the sheep and a word of judgment to the goats. A judgment of the Old Testament saints, we see that in Daniel 12. Judgment of the saints, we have that in the, chapter, the same chapter we're covering tonight. Judgment of Satan and his demons, uh, Revelation 20, verse 10. And we're having some editorial issues. Here we go. And the judgment of unbelievers at the great white throne judgment that we covered just a moment ago. When we find ourselves with the great white throne judgment, it's the last judgment, and with good reason. It is the final word for those who have rejected Christ and are then cast into the lake of fire. When you go through the apocalyptic books, outside of the Bible, specifically Second Enoch, if you're familiar with some of those apocalyptic books, uh, then you'll find that such a, a judgment and a cataclysmic end is expected. We can anticipate that that will come. This moment that we arrive to then at the great white throne judgment might be a surprise to those of us in Christ, but it is, uh, or to those outside of Christ, but is not a surprise to God or those who have paid attention related to the Old Testament and the first century believers, they would have expected this. It is us who want to be justified by our own works. It is us who want to be justified by our motives. It is us who want God to judge us, not based on our actions, but our intentions, that we will find ourselves, for some at least, shocked when the books are open, like they are in Revelation 20, verse 12, and the records containing everyone's deeds, good and evil, are thus exposed. Now, this is a question. Will there be, as some have suggested, a great video board where our deeds are not spelled out in black and white 
print, but rather replayed from a point of view perspective. The Bible doesn't say a thing about that. But I saw a really great Christian film about it one time, and maybe you did too, that showed it that way, where you can be scared about that happening, and it was intended to frighten you back into line. The sad reality is, though, whether it's in print or on video, the judgment is the same. For those outside of Christ, who should have and could have fallen on God's mercy, that moment will be too late. So what is the great white throne judgment? It is the final word for those who have rejected God and the offer of Christ. One last question. This is one that I think is uniquely 21st century, but it is one that I get regularly, especially when I'm talking to those below 40. Is God's judgment just in Revelation 20? Let's be clear, friends. This is an unequivocal yes. There have been many who have rushed to declare God unjust because they disagree with his law. They don't want his gospel. Or, my personal favorite, they want to be judged on their intentions, not their actions. They want to be judged based on an opinion poll of those that are around them. Well, I might not have done what God wanted me to, but I did better than this person and that person, and I'm, I'm better than all of these people, so God should give me a break. However, God will not judge us on a curve. You remember that, judging and grading on a curve? When I was teaching philosophy, I used the curve pretty liberally, if you'll excuse the pun. I would grade the papers, and then whoever scored the highest, I would grant them enough points to stretch it to 100, and then put that amount of points on everyone else's test as well. Invariably, we'd have one or two who would do very well. They would score in the 90s, and so the curve would be very small. And then there was one test that I gave. I don't know why I'd written it the way I did, but it was apparently a very difficult test. The highest score was in the 50s. Perhaps it was a bad test. When I curved it, though, there were some very happy faces when I returned the papers because the curve was around 40 points. They were happy with that curve. When I only curved it five or six points, they didn't like it. Well, now what was wrong? The professor, the student, the points? No, the perception, friends. And that's the problem that some have when they declare God unjust in Revelation 20. I point this out to you because when you start talking to people about their faith in Christ and calling them to repentance, some of them will immediately jump over and say, God deserves, I deserve a break from God because, after all, I've done so many wonderful things and I'm meant to do even more. Friends, I want to take you again to Revelation 20 and have you see that in Revelation 20, verses 12 and following, there's no curve. It is simply a recognition of what is true, and it's too late to change it. 
To declare God is unjust is to declare yourself at minimum equal, perhaps even superior to God in order that your opinion has as much measure of success and clarity as his. In other words, he can't be right. He's not God because I am. You might say, well, um, yeah, that's not exactly true, Darren. You're not God. No, and neither are you. So I have two choices about God's judgment. I can fall before it or have it fall upon me. I'm choosing to fall before it because God and God alone is God. His judgment is just, even if I disagree. To that point, coming to work this week, I was at a red light. The right lane was blocked on the other side of the intersection. This this dude driving a really ratty Toyota Corolla rolled up beside me. And I thought to myself, he must be going to turn right because there's no room for him to do anything else. Surely he does not intend to go through the light. The light changed, I accelerated through, and to my surprise, he had floored it as best he was able and uh, was intending on jumping in ahead of me. He started moving into my lane when my front bumper was about his driver's door. Let me just confess, my first intention was to accelerate. Can I say that honestly here and not be judged by it? (laughs) To accelerate and leave him with a semi-permanent reminder of defensive driving. The difference between defensive and offensive driving. I chose not to do that, you'll be glad to know. I chose not to do that, but really not because I didn't want to damage his vehicle, although that that, that thought would have been fine, but rather because I thought to myself, that's not very Christ-like, not when my brakes work well, and I know they do. Furthermore, I really like my truck. I didn't want anyone to ding it up. So I stopped, honked at him, he held his hand out the window and gave me a salute. I'll let you decide how, what salute that was. It's sad that he decided in his judgment that he needed the chance to be first, even though that wasn't his right or privilege. It's sad that he decided that I should be behind him, even though There was really no need for that. There was plenty of room to fall in line with the rest of us. The line behind me was quite long, and I'm sure that's why he felt like he deserved to go to the head of it. I caution us against the same mistake spiritually. I've heard some who have declared, if people go to a godless eternity, then it will be because they deserve to. I've heard still others say, It was for that purpose that they were created. I caution you against both of those. Neither reflect the kind of kindness that Jesus demonstrated in John 3. Go with me there and you'll see that our friend Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, fearful of what others will say. And you know the story from there. Excuse me. When we see that story, though, let it shake us yet again not because of its familiarity, but because of its passion. 
Jesus there declares the passage that we love so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anybody who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We know that verse and can quote it just as easily as I did right there. I want you to not just quote it, but take it with you to those for whom it is declared. I know it's more difficult sometimes than others. But friends, the most important thing that we will do on this earth is to declare God's grace to those who desperately need it. With that, we have concluded the first 20 chapters of Revelation. Now, we're ready for Stump the Chump. If we have a microphone, I don't know if we do, Katie. I don't see one hanging around. That's okay. Uh, perhaps someone has something you would like to ask. Yes, ma'am. Right. Now, God will condemn, but only after being offered the opportunity. Right. And the reality is, God has already judged the world and found us wanting. That's why Jesus came at all. If we were perfect, there would have been no need for Jesus. All right, someone else? Hi, Shirley. Yes, ma'am. Mm. Sure. So in, in Greek culture, in Greek writing, these two are uh, symbolic of the place of the dead, sort of like Sheol that we find in the Old Testament. It is a place of... Uh, punishment or a place of holding, a place where the dead reside, a cemetery. Burial at sea was a different thing. That's why they're separated as, as two different things or three different things. Death and Hades are sort of sisters. They usually go together. And one of the most interesting things to me about the phraseology here is the, the, the uh, inclusiveness of all of the places that the dead are gathered. There are only really three places that the Greeks would have thought that, this, that dead people would be found. The sea, burial at sea, or perhaps eaten by a sea monster. Death itself, or Hades. And for death and Hades, I invite you back to 1 Corinthians 15. Where, O oh, death is your sting, where, O oh, grave is your victory. Those are terms that you will find synonymous for where the dead are. So why, why is it expressed this way? I think verse 13 is intended to say, everywhere you're going to find dead people, they're going to be raised. And they're going to be raised for the purpose of judging. All right, someone else? So next Sunday night, when we return, it's going to be with a much happier conversation. Aren't you glad? We're due for some. Uh, we've been in this long journey. And... Uh, when we get to next Sunday, you'll hear me say this on Sunday morning, when we get to next Sunday, it is the beginning of the final vision of our friend, the Apostle John. When we enter into that conversation in the final vision, then understand this, 
There are a lot of questions about how to, how to structure Revelation, uh, and, and especially with regard to how to break it down, where the visions start, where the visions stop. The, the two visions that we can say definitively, yes, this opens and closes there, are Revelation 1 to 3, with the letters and the introductory statements, and Revelation 21 and 22, the closing chapters. We have left the wilderness, and we are moving into the promised land, quite literally. So uh, as you return on Sunday of next week, come with an eager heart to hear about the new heaven, the new earth, and most assuredly, the new Jerusalem. Let us pray together and we'll be concluded for this evening. And now, Jesus, we rejoice in the goodness that you've shown us. We rejoice, Lord, that because of your passion for us, you came. I pray today, Lord, for those who need to hear the good news, this week even. Send us to them, Lord. Open doors of opportunity. Give us the clarity of mind and heart to say, yes, Lord, I will I will be useful to you in speaking to them. They may not even know how desperately they need to hear your good news, but Jesus, we know. We know. And so send us as your envoys, Lord, to those who desperately need it. Help us, like those who operate the lighthouse, to keep our light burning. Help us, like lifeguards, constantly watching out to see who's drowning, to reach out to them, ready to draw them in. And help us, Lord, by preparing the way ahead of us. We don't know, Lord, how to get them ready, but you do. So open doors, Lord, of opportunity and do it in us. Do it through us. And thank you, Lord, for putting us together for this journey. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you soon.